Well, it's good to be with you all this morning, singing the Lord's praises on this Sunday right before Christmas, something we've waited for for perhaps a long time. But waiting, waiting isn't our favorite thing, is it? We're not very good at, at waiting, are we? I can remember being a kid as Christmas was coming, I was getting really excited. You know, you start to hear Christmas music on the radio in November, but you still got a whole at least month or month and a half to go before Christmas. I used to love it. Christmas Eve, we would go to my um, dad's side of the family and I'd open up a ton of presents. Then Christmas morning, I'd wake up, open stockings and open a ton of presents at home. Then in the afternoon, I'd go to my mom's side of the family, open a ton of presents and just Christmas was awesome. So as a kid, I just couldn't wait for it to be Christmas. You know, the music starts in November, but you still got so long to wait. It just seems like forever. As kids, it's hard to wait. But as adults, it doesn't necessarily become easier to wait for things, does it? Credit cards are examples of that. The f even the fact that they exist says, I don't want to wait for this, so I'm just going to buy it now whether I have the money or not. We don't like waiting, and credit cards are doing very well because it's not kids that have the credit cards, it's we as adults that have them. And we don't like to wait. It's really hard to wait, isn't it? This is the fourth Sunday um, in the Advent season, and Advent simply means coming. The people of God were waiting for the coming of their Messiah. They didn't have to wait months, they had to wait much, or they didn't have to wait months, they had to wait much, much longer than this. They had to wait decades and actually centuries for the coming of their Messiah. So this uh, year during our Advent season, we're continuing our series called Christmas Foretold. And last week, Pastor John began or reopened our series by talking about um, the promised prophet from Deuteronomy 18. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 2 and investigate how this passage speaks to the coming of Christ especially with reference to the Son in verse 7. He's the true king that we've waited for and the true king that we long for. So open up your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Psalm 2. The first thing we're going to look at in this psalm is how would this psalm have been read by the original audience? Sometimes it's hard for us to um, get into a text without reading into it all that we know that comes after it. But how would this psalm have been read by the, additional, by the original audience? Psalm 2 is in the category of psalms called the royal psalms. There's about 10 of these psalms um, in the book of psalms. They speak about the king, the human king, actually, of Israel or Judah. These psalms teach, they teach God's people what the king should be like, as well as how they should understand what their messianic king would be like as well. So in some ways, they always have had a double meaning to them. Psalm 2 doesn't give the name of the author, like many of the other psalms do. But in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are praying in the upper room for boldness as they go to, to share the gospel, uh, they say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David. And they, then they go on to quote verses 1 and 2 of this psalm. So the New Testament apostles understood that Psalm 2 was a psalm of David. So again, let's, let's just dive in here for first this morning, looking at how would the original audience of this psalm have read it. Verses 1 to 3, if you've got it open in front of you. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up 
and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The first verses of this psalm talk out by, by talking about these nations that are coming up around God's people and they're plotting against them. You get this picture that it's some sort of like united nations of kings surrounding Israel saying we are going to come up against this king. We're going to come up against the Lord and his anointed one. If you look closely when it says Lord, you'll see that all of the letters there are capitalized and that means, as you may know, that this means that it's the personal name of God, Yahweh, that is being spoken of here. So the peoples are coming up against Yahweh and against his anointed. And it starts out by asking, why are they doing this? Why would they come up against the king and his, the Lord and his anointed one? It seems foolish for at least two reasons. One, Yahweh is a good God. And he, he put his king in place to be a blessing not only to Israel, but to the nations as well. And secondly, coming against Yahweh, who's ultimately powerful and mighty and strong, it's ultimately foolish to come against Yahweh. So question... The question, verse 1, assumes that there's futility in coming against the Lord and that they're plotting in vain. Verses 2 and 3 said that they're trying to break the chains that they feel are around them. When people are under the rule of someone, they feel like they are under chains. And the tendency of people, whether it's back then or now, is that we want to rebel against those that the Lord has put in authority over us. But what the nations don't see here is that God's king is a good king and is, meant, is put in place for their blessing. So instead of wanting to live under the rule of David, they seek to rebel against them. And so the summary of these first three verses, I'd say, is that the nations have rejected God. They want to rule themselves rather than living under God's gracious rule. Verses four to six of Psalm two. The Lord, or sorry, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. The picture we get here is of God. He's sitting down, up in heaven, looking down at the rebellion, completely unconcerned by what the people are doing. It's not that he doesn't care about the people, but he just doesn't feel any threat by the little kings of earth. He, he laughs at their rebellion. Again, it doesn't mean that he's uncaring, but he's up in, the, in his throne. The picture of God on his throne is one of strength. If you think to Revelation 4, Pastor John uh, preached on that last year. We get the picture of God, mighty, sitting on his throne. It talks about rumbles of thunder and flashes of lightning. God is up on his throne, and what is going on on earth? In a sense, it doesn't bother him as if he's under any attack from these kings of earth. In verse 5, it says that his laughter actually turns into anger, though, at the rebellion. Because their purpose is to unseat the king that God has placed on the throne in Jerusalem. The context of this statement comes from uh, 2 Samuel 7, where God chooses David and his descendants to be the ones that will rule on, on the earthly throne. Through this line... God will bring blessings, not just again to Israel, but to all of the nations. So in Psalm 2, we see that God's anger is kindled against the nations because they're rebelling against the very one that would bring them blessing if they would only submit to his kingly rule. 
So the summary of verses 4 to 6, God is sitting on the throne despite the rebellion of nations, and their rebellion causes two things from God. Laughter, because they can't truly actually harm God, but also anger from God, because they're rejecting his good plans for them and for all the nations. Psalm goes on in verses 7 to 9, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Verse 7, it's another reference to 2 Samuel 7, where God makes his promise to David. In verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, God says of David, I will be his father and he will be my son. So that's almost a direct quote there of what we see in Psalm 2, verse 7. This image of God being like a father to David tells us that it wasn't just like a business relationship that God was meaning to have with the king, but he gives his personal name, remember, Yahweh, and he says, the king is going to be to me like a son, and I'm going to be a father to him. God is not a distant God who's just orchestrating things from afar without any personal relationship. The relationship he desires to have with the king and through the king, the people of Israel, is a personal one, a loving one, where they know his personal name. In verse 8, God promises to the king that the nations will be his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. And I won't go too far into 2 Samuel 7 because next week Pastor Chris will be speaking on these verses but again, the idea, the idea that would have been given to the original audience was that this king that God has put in place is going to be there forever. It's going to be good. We are going to prosper. And not only us, because we're going to prosper, the nations around us will prosper. Everyone will come under the gracious rule of God's king, and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. In verse 9, though, it reminds us, though, for those that come against the Lord, there will be punishment. And this is... Um, this is just the way it, it has been since even Genesis 12, when God spoke to Abraham and said, those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. And so there's the two sides of it. Those that come under the gracious rule of God and his plan will experience blessing, but those that rebel against it uh, will experience punishment. So the summary of verses 7 to 9 are that God, again, has promised to bless his people in a great way through David and his line, and there's blessing for falling under that rule, but there's a curse or punishment for rebellion. Then finally, in the last uh, three verses, it says this, verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve the Lord, serve Yahweh with fear, and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and, you, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a, mo in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. His final words are spoken actually to the rebellious kings of the nations that surround Israel. They come as a warning again. God has placed his king in place, and God is going to protect his king. The psalmist here says that to the world, serve him with fear and celebrate him. So the Lord is to be served and celebrated, but with fear and trembling. There's a way in which we're supposed to approach the king. How do they serve the Lord? How do they serve Yahweh in this instance? They do it by kissing his son, by respecting the king, by honoring the king that Yahweh has put into place. 
In order to serve the Lord, you serve the king that he's anointed. If you do that, there's great blessing, but if you do not, God's wrath will come up against you. God is absolutely committed to his king, the one he calls his son. Finally, the last line of, of Psalm 2 ends with a word of blessing. Blessed then are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 teaches that a happy life, a good life, a prosperous life comes from living under that gracious rule and reign of the one that God has anointed to rule. So I've kind of run quickly through this psalm. Psalm 2, how would we summarize it? God has set his earthly king on the throne. He loves the king that he's established and put into place. He treats him like a son. God's people are told to live well under his gracious rule. They'll be blessed if they do that. But if they come up against him, or if the kings around come up against them, it will lead to their downfall. So that's that's Psalm 2, to the original audience. But tension builds for later readers of Psalm 2. We are later readers of Psalm 2, but but what about the people that came shortly after? This psalm was written around 1000 BC in the time of David. How would later... Um, followers of God have read this psalm. We could say that it was partially fulfilled in David. David, in in a sense, was the high point (laughs) right at the beginning of the kingly um, line in Israel and Judah. So it was partially fulfilled, but what about in David's sons and the ones that followed? How does Psalm 2 look like under the rule of Solomon? Well, maybe not as good as it did under David. What about Rehoboam? Solomon's son, probably even less good. What about Abijah? And it goes on and on and on. And all of a sudden, Psalm 2, this triumphant royal psalm, doesn't seem to make much sense. There's tension here. How am I supposed to live under the gracious rule of this king who's doing evil in the sight of the Lord? The majority of the kings in the line of David rebelled against God, and at the end of their life, it said that They did what was evil, like his father. Very few times did it say he honored the Lord like their father David. So many people would be asking as king after king comes, many people would have lived their entire life not knowing a good and gracious king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. What's happening? Is it okay that Psalm 2 doesn't seem to be coming true for God's people? Maybe it's easy for us, again, to look back with our lens now, but what about for those people, again, who lived, say, 300 years after David, reading this in their book of Psalms? 300 years after David, it was the time of Isaiah the prophet. Things weren't looking good. They're singing. We, we, we listen to, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This was their heart's cry as they're living under evil kings. At 722 BC, the northern tribes of Israel are crushed by the Assyrians and taken into exile. It's a time of great darkness for God's people. Yet they've got this psalm. They're saying, how is this true? What happened to your promises, O Lord? But it was at that time that God spoke again to his people and made a prophecy concerning another son that was to come. I read some of this this morning, Isaiah 9. So again, we're fast-forwarding about 300 years from David 
writing in Psalm 2. Isaiah 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. There's this promise that a light is coming in the darkness. And then it goes on in verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government, the ruling, will be on his shoulders and will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, the son. Is this the same son that was promised that God would have this relationship like a, as a father to a son? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Is this the fulfillment of Psalm 2 that Isaiah is talking about? After so many years of poor leadership and bad kings, you can imagine that the people are growing tired of thinking that, will God ever come good on his word? There had been no true son of God for so many years. And yet here again, a prophecy, 300 years later, a son will be born and the government will be on his shoulders. But then the lights go down on the time of Isaiah and the people still feel like they're living in darkness. They're still longing and desiring for this son who would be the true king they long for. And there still was a long time to wait. Things didn't get better right away in the time of Isaiah. In fact, they got worse. About 135 years later, not only the northern tribes of Israel, but in 586, the Jews, the people of Judah, the people who were in Jerusalem witnessed the destruction of their temple. We're learning about this in our series on Daniel. This is the time we're talking about here. You know, they're asking, I thought a light was supposed to be dawning on us, but now not only the northern tribes are gone, but we're exiled. This is why we have 10 royal psalms, but 42 psalms of lament. God's people are experiencing so much hardship and lament but even after they return from their exile, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we learn about the rebuilding of the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. Things seem to be getting better, but the son that was promised still hasn't come. From the rebuilding of the temple, this is about 515 BC when it was completed. Another 500 years passes. Think about that, 500 years. It's like going back from us to the time of the Reformation and Martin Luther, 1500s. Can you imagine? That's a long time. Generation after generation passes away, still without this son. But then something amazing happens. We see this light begin to dawn, and we read about it in Luke 1, 26 to 35. It was told over these last two nights, the miracle on Garth Street story, but it's told right here in Luke chapter 1. Verse 26 says that in the sixth month, a thousand years after this prophecy in Psalm 2, in the sixth month, though, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, David the true son, the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God, as he has promised, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. How can this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy One to be born will be the Son of God, the Son that was promised a thousand years ago, the Son that was promised 700 years ago, the Son that was constantly promised throughout the time of God's people, but they didn't see it. Finally, this light that was, that was needed in the darkness has come. Jesus has come. The fulfillment of the one promised in Psalm 2, 1,000 years after that Son was first promised, the Son arrives on the scene. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 2, verse 7. We go on to see this confirmed in the book of Acts, which was read a little earlier in chapter 13, verses 32 and 33. Paul's preaching to a crowd. It's in modern-day Turkey. And he says, We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors long ago, he has fulfilled for us, their children. And how did he fulfill it? By raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So what we see here in Psalm 2, it's meant to be read on multiple levels. It was speaking about David, and it was speaking about David's line. But as we see in, in Acts 13, it was ultimately speaking of Jesus. When we look back on Psalm 2, we have to see, if you look back at it with an honest reading, there's some things that could never be fulfilled by an earthly king, by a human king. Some of the prophecies of Psalm 2. Look again at, uh, at Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth, the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. In Hebrew, the, the word that, in, for anoint, that we have translated anointed is Messiah. It's the same word as Messiah. The ones, they rise up against the Lord and his Messiah. It's right there in Psalm 2 if we translate it a different way. The kings of the earth and the rulers band together against Yahweh, God the Father, and his Messiah, God the Son. The language is too strong to, for it to just be an earthly king. It clearly speaks about Jesus. Tim Keller, when he writes on Psalm 2, he said, if you read it carefully, you'll see that no earthly king can completely justify the fury of the threats, and no earthly king can completely justify the glory of the promises. The language, you may say, of Psalm 2 spills out over its banks. So we see that the psalm's not just speaking about David, but speaking of one who was promised that, would, that was greater than David. It was a promise that the true king would come. And so you might think, well, this is kind of cool, this is kind of interesting, I'll note it in my Rolodex of Bible knowledge. But what, what does it actually mean for me today, sitting here in December 2021 with the life I have in front of me? How does Psalm 2 speak to us this Christmas? 
I like to say that it, it speaks to us in at least two ways. It speaks in multiple ways, but two ways that I've found meaningful. The first way is that Jesus is the true king that we long for. We long for a king. Psalm 2, um, verses 2 and 3, again, in the NIV, it says, The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their sh shackles. When I looked at this passage a little closer, I saw that the word shackles and chains, could I, it, it gives you the, the feeling that they're imprisoned, like that the king has put them in prison. But another translation for, this, for shackles could be yoke. It, the kings and rulers aren't prisoners to the Lord's anointed. They're under his yoke, and they don't like it. A yoke is something, right, that you put on animals to keep them in line. If they're not going to do it on their own, you put a yoke on them so that they do what they're supposed to do. The, the idea is that these, these kings, they're, they're rebelling because they don't like to be under the yoke of anyone. And while that's true in the days of David, it's still true today. People don't want to fall under the rule of anybody. People want to rule themselves. We like a lot of the things that Jesus says. Perhaps we here as Christians say that we, we enjoy much of his teaching. But there's some things that we might feel uncomfortable about sometimes when he calls us to do certain things that seem extreme. We, we prefer Jesus to be our advisor rather than our king. He can give us some advice, but if it kind of rubs up against how I want to rule myself, then maybe I'll just go my own way and, and do that. We want the blessing of the king without the rule of the king. But we don't get the blessings of the kingdom without the king. The good news that we have here is that we long for a true king and a good king. And the good news is that Jesus is that good king. He is ultimately committed to his glory, but also to our good. He puts a yoke upon us, but how does he describe it? He tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I think deep down, we all know we were meant to live under a king. So many of the stories that get told all throughout the year are about people who enjoyed favor and happiness when they lived under a good king, but then for some reason that king went away, whether it was to battle, and when the king was away, things got bad. A poor ruler came in his place. In these stories, the people hope not just to get rid of the bad person that's in place, but also the, the resumption of the rule of the good king. Think of Narnia. They're not just happy the citizens of Narnia went because the, the evil, wicked white witch is put away. They want the return of Aslan. In reality, this is what Jesus is to us. He is that good king that rules us well, that protects us, and if we live under his gracious rule, we can be blessed and live that life of blessing. In reality, we all live under a king, whether we say we do or not, but for so many people in our culture today, they are their own king. And maybe for some of us, even sitting here this morning, we are our own king. Our king is our career, our king is our family, our king is our popularity. All of us serve something or someone. The best situation, though, for us is to live under that true king, that good and benevolent king, a king who cares for us and provides for us. The good news of Christmas is that Jesus is that king 
who came. He's the king who provides for us. He came during Advent and came to be with us as Emmanuel, God with us. Our king humbled himself, being born in a stable. In the first Advent, we get a picture of what our king is like. And ultimately now, as God's people living today, we hope for that second Advent, when the king will return triumphantly again, and forever we will live under his gracious reign and rule. So Psalm 2 is good news for us at Christmas because Jesus is that promised king who will live for us and provide for us and rule over us. But the second thing is that Jesus is the true son who came in the flesh and became our savior. At Christmas, like God the son always existed. He existed forever with the father into all eternity. But in a special way at Christmas, we got to experience God the son. He was written into our story in a new way. He went from being spirit only, God the Son, to taking on flesh, to being like us. We see this in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That baby that was in the major was 100% human, but also 100% God. Think about that. We we can't wrap our minds around that. A baby born in a, a manger was human, but also fully God. It's not possible for us to fully understand that. We're talking about God. We shouldn't be able to fully understand that. But what difference does that make to us today? It means that God isn't just out there, disconnected from creation. This means God knows what it's like to be human. What you're going through right now, whether it's a time of joy or a time of sorrow, our king knows both. He knows the experience you're going through right now. He knows and experienced human frailty. Jesus was tired like we get. Jesus needed to sleep. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got sweaty. You aren't dealing with a God who just sits up with his Philadelphia cream cheese up in the heavens. You're dealing with a God who knows what you're going through right now. God's word tells us that because of his humanity, Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Psalm 2 Verse 7 is directly quoted many times in the New Testament. We've seen Paul make reference to it in his speech in Acts 13. But we also see it in Hebrews 5. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Hebrews 5. In Hebrews 5, verse 5, it goes on and says, In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. So the author of Hebrews is referencing the same passage in Psalm 2. Then he goes on to say, Hebrews 5, 7 to 9, During the day of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. So Jesus, he offered up fervent cries and tears 
to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. To me, this is fascinating. Jesus, who is truly God, 100% God, offered up prayers to God the Father through cries and tears. Think about that. Jesus knows what it's like to pray desperately, to be in a situation he feels uncomfortable in and have to call out to God the Father with cries and tears. Jesus knows what it's like. The Bible says that when we pray to God, even now Jesus intercedes for us before God the Father. So when we're in situations where we just don't know even what to pray or how to pray, Jesus knows what that's like, and now he sits at the Father's right hand praying for you as you pray, giving you the words that you don't even know how to speak during hardship. He knows that things aren't always good, even at Christmas time, even when we're supposed to be happy and the Christmas trees and the lights and the presents, but we just don't feel that sometimes. Jesus knows what that is like. He experienced life and hardship just as we did. Hebrews 5, 8 says he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus suffered. If you've suffered, you have a high king. Your king, your gracious, benevolent king, knows what it feels like to suffer and what you're suffering right now. It's part of being human, and Jesus was human. God came in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus can relate to what you're going through. This is such good news for us. This is such good news for me as I've felt just such weight and grief over this past year. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer and to not even have words to bring before the Father. This is the good news of Christmas. But the best news of all comes in verse 9 of Hebrews 5. The greatest part of Jesus becoming flesh is that in verse 9 it says, He has become now the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. God's word teaches us that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. This, the Bible teaches us that we all, whatever standards we have, we fall short of them. Some people don't think that the Bible standards is what the standards we should have for our life, so they have a separate set of standards. But whether you just hold to the Bible standards of what you should live up to, or your own standards or culture's standards, everyone falls short. Even if they don't believe in God's word, they have standards that people should live in. They criticize people for not living up to it, but they fall short of their own. So no matter if we're religious or irreligious, we all fall short of the standards we set. If we're going to stand before a holy and righteous God, we need a virtue or we need a righteousness that is not of our own, that comes from outside ourselves because we don't have it in ourselves. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the story of Christmas. God coming in human form, living that life of virtue, living that life of righteousness on your behalf. The life that you couldn't live, Jesus lived, came in the flesh, and lived it perfectly. And it says that, the, the Bible says that Jesus lived a perfect life, 
lived for 33 years approximately, went to the cross, died, the godly for the ungodly, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is why the son became flesh at Christmas. God so loved the world. He gave his only son so that any of us who believe in him will not perish but that we can have eternal life. And so this offer of eternal life is out there for each and every one of us. One day, each and every person sitting in this room will stand before a holy God and have to offer the righteousness of themselves or the righteousness of Christ, the true King. Each of us will just have that to offer, ourselves or the righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, from Jesus. I'm so thankful that I can stand before God with dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. And my invitation would be for anyone here who has never received the righteousness of Christ, that by believing in him, as John 3.16 says, that you will not perish, but that you will have eternal life. My invitation would be, think about the meaning of Christmas and trust in Jesus to be your Savior. And so, as I close, why is Psalm 2 good news? Why is it a good psalm for us to think about at Christmas? It's a good psalm to think about at Christmas because it shows that Jesus has promised to send a true son, the Messiah that will be like David, but even greater than David. He's the true king that we long for, and he's the true son who is our savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in darkness, but that a light has dawned upon us, and that light is Christ. Lord, we, we love your son. We thank you so much for him. We thank you that at Christmas time, year after year, we can remember that you became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us, and so that we can see your glory. Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray that for those that don't yet know you, Lord, that by your Spirit you would be speaking into their lives, that they wouldn't just want this year to be a sentimental Christmas with gifts and movies and decorating the tree, but it would be something much more meaningful that we can celebrate that we truly do have a Savior if we would only trust in him. And Lord, for us that have trusted in you, I just pray, God, bless us with joy in the fact of knowing that we do have a true Savior who has come for us because he loves us. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we, uh, as we go now, my uh, prayer and blessing for you would be the same thing that I'm praying even for my own self this, this Christmas, that um, no matter what place we find ourselves in, that we would find that true, deep, personal, life-giving joy that comes from experiencing, not just knowing, but experiencing the Savior's love for us. So my blessing is just experience the love of Christ that he has for you this Christmas season. Amen. Mm -hmm.